But as we come in, find a seat. I'll go ahead and pray as we get started. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you as always for another opportunity to gather. Lord, we see your glory displayed in um, creation every day, all kinds of weather in every season. So we praise you for your goodness, even when it's cold outside, yet it is warm here. We spend time together fellowshipping around your word. Lord, keep people safe today as they're traveling. Those that are unable to be here, Lord, may you encourage them as well. Lord, lead us to um, see you clearly in your word today and also see ourselves clearly, see our hearts clearly, that we might um, confess sin, forsake it, and continue to look to Christ, um, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, here we are, our last week in our study of the Ten Commandments. Today we get to cover the last two, number nine and number ten. Number nine is, of course, Exodus 20, verse 16. Let's get right to it. On the top of your handout it says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, Rather than first consider the foundation or the basis of this tenth commandment, ninth commandment, um, we'll consider that in a moment, but first let's think about the context of the actual language used here. Because I think it's pretty common for us sometimes to truncate or paraphrase this commandment. And we think of it sometimes simply in terms of thou shalt not lie, right? But in some ways, I think that paraphrasing the commandment that way actually distorts its meaning just a little bit. So let's think about the language being used here. I think that the language here is more narrow than simply saying, thou shalt not lie. Now, why do I say that? Well, certainly lying is encompassed in the broad meaning of this commandment. But here, Exodus 20, verse 16 its overarching concern is that of witness. And its specific concern is that of harming your neighbor by bearing false witness about him. Now let's think about these two things a little bit further. First, witness, and then neighbor. First of all, what does it mean to be a witness? Well, we should understand that all of us are witnesses. Every Christian is a witness. Not necessarily in a courtroom kind of under oath sense, but a witness in the sense of what we see in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus told the apostles, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Every Christian has been made a witness. Now even for the apostles to whom Acts 1 8 is most immediately applicable, That was not really an imperative to them, telling them to go and witness. Really, that was saying something about them, about who they were. They were witnesses. They couldn't help but be a witness. And I think it's the same for us. We have to recognize that, first of all, witness is not just what we say. It's also what we do. It's also what we fail to say and what we fail to do. We can witness well, we can witness badly, we can witness truly, and we can witness falsely. But we can't avoid being a witness. 
Now, this ninth commandment is not necessarily speaking in reference to being a witness for Christ, not so much about being a witness for our faith, but it's speaking, as I said, about being a witness about or against your neighbor. So let's think about how neighbor affects the way we understand the ninth commandment. We might simply want to ask the question, well, who is our neighbor? And we might want to answer that question by saying, well, isn't everyone? Isn't everyone our neighbor? Well, I think in some ways Scripture qualifies who our neighbor is and who our neighbor isn't. In fact, the first Scripture you might think of is Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus gave that parable specifically to a man who had asked, who then is my neighbor? But as is often the case, Jesus' parables have a surprise ending. It doesn't end the way you would expect. And I think the way that he ends the parable, Luke 10, verse 36, is that really asking who is my neighbor is the wrong question. Really, he says, the question you should ask is to whom should I be a neighbor? And the way the parable answers that is that a follower of Christ should be a neighbor to someone who is found injured and bleeding on the side of the road, regardless of his race or religion. We should be a neighbor to those we find in need, I think. But even that being the case, I don't think that in that parable, Jesus is universalizing the concept of neighbor. I think there's still distinctions to be made. Because not every person that we encounter on the road is our neighbor. We might encounter a thief or a robber, someone seeking to do us harm. In that case, we probably shouldn't think of them as our neighbor, really. They probably are thinking of themselves as an enemy to us. So we have to make this distinction, I think, between what is a neighborly relationship in order to understand the ninth commandment. Now, of course, it's also true that Scripture says we should love our neighbors and we should love our enemies. But I don't think that we're expected to love them in the same way. Think about this. Don't you think it's true that someone that is seen as our enemy, while we are to love them, we would still desire that judgment, as in God's justice, be done for what it is that they're doing wrong? quick example, if someone has broken into your home, let's say you weren't there, someone has burglarized your home, you come back and find that some valuables are missing, you realize that someone has, kind of an enemy has done this. Someone has taken your things, they also probably have taken your peace of mind, several things from you, and how are you supposed to love them? Well, you love them in some way because you want justice to be done. And as you're praying that justice be done and they be found, be brought to justice, though you might also pray that they would also seek forgiveness for what they've done. So I don't think that love for our enemies excludes wanting justice to be done for them. These distinctions are important, I think, for the ninth commandment because this commandment has specifically neighborly relationships in view. So, 
if we were going to kind of give a narrow meaning for this commandment, it might go like this. You shall not distort or misrepresent the facts in a way to harm one's neighbor. Now, you might raise your eyebrows and say, well, Nathan, are you saying that I can tell an untruth if it doesn't harm my neighbor? Well, no, I'm not saying that. And you might ask the question, well, can I tell an untruth if it helps my neighbor? Well, I might be saying that, but we'll get to that question in a moment, so hold on to that. What I want us to see, first of all, is that the language used here in Exodus 20:16, it's not mandating truth in a broad, abstract way. It's focusing specifically on relationships between the people of God and their neighbors. We really have to go beyond the text of Exodus 20:16. We have to look elsewhere in Scripture to find these broad mandates about truth. So let's do that now. Let's think about the foundation of the ninth commandment. And after we do that, then I think we'll be able to look at the question, must I always tell the truth? So what is the foundation of the ninth commandment? Well, as we have normally seen each week in this study, we can pretty much always find the foundation for each commandment in the character of God. Something about God himself underlies each of the commandments. And this one I think is actually pretty easy because the ninth commandment I think is founded upon the fact that God is the true God and that God is truth in the highest and most ultimate sense. And not only is God is a generic kind of thing, but each person of the Trinity Scripture describes each person of the Godhead as being truth. A few verses, just representative verses. More could be added to these. Psalm 111, verse 7 says of the Father, The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. We know that in John 14, 6, Jesus claimed to be the truth the way, the truth, and the life. From John 1, verse 17, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And then on more than one occasion in the upper room discourse, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth, the one whom Jesus would send to guide the apostles into all the truth. So not only is this foundational to the ninth commandment, I think it also has practical import in our own lives. Here's one quote from John Murray. He says, quote, This attribute of God's truthfulness is often expressed in his faithfulness and is exemplified in the certainty and in the immutability of his promises and his threatenings. So I think we should see that our ability to entrust ourselves to God and in his faithfulness is largely due to the fact that God is true. God is truthful, and therefore he may be trusted. But what happens when people do not trust in God's truthfulness? What happens when people do not think that they can rely on God's faithfulness? 
that they cannot rely on his promises and threatenings. Well, let's consider one more time in this series something from the creation account. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. We've looked at the creation account more often, more weeks than not, as the commandments are also largely founded in things we see before the fall. In this case, regarding God's truthfulness, we have to look at the fall itself, Genesis 3. Now, last week we looked at Genesis 2.17, where we saw the sanctity of life and the prospect of death, where God promised, he made a promise, a true promise and a true threat, in fact, about if Adam and Eve chose to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then what would happen? They would die. It's a true promise and a true threat that God had made. What happens in chapter 3? I'll just read verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said... You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So two things here. First of all, the serpent questioned God's word. Did God really say? Did he really say this? And then, not only that, he questioned the truthfulness of God's word. In fact, verse 4, where the serpent says, you surely shall not die, Satan is asserting the opposite of what God had told Adam and Eve. So what was Satan's tactic? Was he trying to get Eve to think that um, God was actually wrong and that he didn't know what would happen if they ate the fruit? Or was he trying to question the fact that God had told them the truth to begin with? Was the serpent questioning God's intelligence or his truthfulness? I think the latter. I think he was questioning perhaps, actually, Eve. I think the serpent was saying, God didn't tell you the truth. You're not really going to die. He was getting them to question God's truthfulness, and as such, if God hadn't spoken the truth to them, well, then he's not to be trusted in general, right? Now, how do we know that this is the line of thinking, the line of reasoning that Satan is taking? Well, I think we know this because Scripture describes Satan as the father of lies. Jesus said in John 8, 44, when, when the devil speaks lies, he's speaking his native language. Lies are the devil's stock and trade. So if we're seeking to answer the question, what happens when people do not trust in God's truthfulness, in his faithfulness, when they don't think they can rely on God's promises, though well, I think based on what we see here, we see that people fall into sin, they fall into unbelief, and they become easy prey for Satan. 
because his deception is crafty, cunning, and constant. Now certainly I know that as believers, we don't trust our Heavenly Father perfectly. I know that. But I think that God's truthfulness and his trustworthiness should be a powerful motivation for us to trust him, to grow in our trust of him, knowing that he is true and his promises can be trusted. Another quote from John Murray. He says, it is the truth of the gospel dwelling richly in us and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that ensures the truthfulness of our practical life. Sincerity, honesty, and integrity are formed in us by the truth. Quote. Now, of course, we realize that for the unbeliever, lies are commonplace. I think lying is a regular characteristic of the unregenerate. Scripture even tells us this. I think lying also sums up one of the many ways that we um, harm one another with our words. It can take the form of gossip or slander, simply twisting someone's words, judging rashly. And I think lying also illustrates the truth we see in James chapter 3 where the tongue is described as having a great power to do evil. So what have we seen so far? Three little points I might summarize with. First of all, the ninth commandment speaks specifically in reference to bearing false witness against your neighbor. Secondly, the commandment is founded upon the truthfulness of God himself. And then finally, this truthfulness of God should be a powerful basis for us to trust him. And his truthfulness is the basis for the general scriptural polemic against lying. With all that said, we now have to ask the question, must we always tell the truth? Well, let's make some more distinctions. What is a lie and what is not? Well, first of all, a mistake is not a lie. A child that answers the math problem, 2 plus 2 equals 5, he's made a mistake, but he hasn't lied. We wouldn't call him a liar, even though we could say that that answer is untrue. A mistake is not a lie. Now, perhaps something that we're more prone to do, passing along information that we believe is true, but which turns out to be not true, I don't think that should properly be called a lie. Let's say that this morning, I told my wife that the high temperature today was 46 degrees. Well, perhaps I hadn't refreshed my web browser and that was yesterday's high. Now, I've told her something that's untrue, but I don't think you would say that I've lied to my wife. It was a mistake. So mistakes are not lies. Secondly, fictional stories or parables are not lies. That is, unless, of course, their author maintains that they are factual. Now, that's not to say that fictional stories and parables cannot convey truth. They certainly can. Jesus' parables are largely kind of fictional stories, kind of scenarios. They convey lots of truth, but their fictional nature doesn't make them lies. Hyperbolic statements are not lies. Telling someone, it took me forever to get here. Well, that clearly is not true, but it's also not a lie 
That's just a regular usage of the English language. We understand what that means. It's an expression, a figure of speech, not a lie. Now, deception in games, whether a card game or an athletic contest or a board game, I don't think we should think that those things are lies. Oftentimes, good strategy, I think, requires deception. We wouldn't say, I don't think, that a quarterback hiding the ball from the defense in order to misdirect them, that's deception, but we wouldn't call him a liar. Similarly, people often deceive one another in a joking way. I don't think we call them lies when people tell jokes. Even magic, sleight of hand, card tricks, rabbits in top hats, that requires deception for the audience. We wouldn't, we wouldn't call the magician a liar. Interestingly, Jesus, it seems, was purposefully deceptive on the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24. He acted as if he was going to go farther. I think that tells us that he had no intention of actually going farther, but for some reason he wanted his companions to think that he was. I think we can rightly call that deception in some sense, but we certainly wouldn't call it sin. For whatever reason, in his good purpose, he wanted them to think that Jesus was going to keep going, even though he had no intention of doing so. So then what is a lie? Several things that we've talked about, I think, are rightly kind of deceiving, but they're not lies, so then what is a lie? Well, here's one definition from John Frame. I think it's on your handout. A lie is a word or act that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to hurt him. It is false witness against a neighbor. Now again, I'm qualifying this definition in terms of a neighborly relationship. We've already seen and considered, I hope, who a neighbor is. So let's look at at least a couple of scripture texts from the Old Testament where the people of God deceive others. At least in a, actually both of these cases, they tell lies, things that are not true. As we consider the question, must we always tell the truth? I think you're in Genesis now. Flip forward from chapter 3 to chapter 27. Genesis 27. A familiar text. This is Jacob. We know what happens here. We know that Jacob deceives his father, Isaac, in order to receive his brother's blessing. And in fact, Jacob's mother, Rebekah, is an accomplice in him doing this. Jacob is dressed up in Esau's clothes. They even put goat skins on him to make it even more convincing. And he enters into his father's room. Pick it up in verse 18 of Genesis 27. Then he came to his father and said, My father... And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Get up, please, sit and eat of my game that you may bless me. And Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have, that you have it so quickly, my son? And he said, because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. And Isaac said to Jacob, please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, 
The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. Now this is not some generic deception. Jacob has at least twice explicitly lied about his identity telling things that are not true to his father, saying, I am Esau. Now, how do we evaluate this? Well, think about our definition of a lie. Um, I think we should certainly agree that Jacob should have been in a neighborly relationship with his father. They were not enemies, and in fact, neighbor doesn't really get to the closeness of that relationship. They were father and son. Now, was Jacob's deception intended to harm his father? Well, in Jacob's mind, maybe not. He probably wasn't doing this with the intention of harming Isaac, but at the same time, he was taking from his father something that didn't belong to him. In a sense, he was not only lying, he was also stealing. Jacob was taking something that wasn't rightfully his. Or was it? Was this blessing really Jacob's and not Esau's? Well, this indeed is an added complication to this example. Um, I think we have to conclude that Jacob lied. He had sinned in affirming that he was his brother when he really was not. In a strict case of truth-telling, he had sinned. But the complication here is that in his deception... In his sin, God's purpose in history, and also redemption, was still being carried out. So that might make us kind of scratch our heads and wonder, well, how was God using Jacob's sin to bring about his good purpose? How does that work? Well, two things briefly. We have to understand that the purposes and ways of God are often inscrutable to us. God has a secret will, which remains that, a secret. We can't always understand what God is doing. Many times, I think, as Romans 11.33 says, his ways are beyond our finding out. But at the same time, we should recognize that God uses means to bring about his purposes. And he even uses the means of sinful actions of his people to bring his purposes about. Now, this doesn't make God responsible for their sin, but he may use anything, even evil, to bring about his good purposes. One more quote from John Murray, quote, God fulfills his determinate purpose of grace and promise, notwithstanding the unworthy actions of those who are the beneficiaries of that grace. God fulfills his determinate purpose in spite of the actions which are alien to the integrity of character which his will demands, end quote. So this first example, I think, clearly an example of sinful deception. Jacob has lied. This is not the way he should have proceeded with his father, but at the same time, this was God's plan. Certainly, Jacob is responsible for his sin. 
turn forward from Genesis 27 to 1 Samuel 27. One more example, this one from David. This is perhaps or probably less familiar. David is fleeing from Saul. And in this case, he's fled into Philistine territory, into Gath specifically. And he comes to one of the leaders in this area named Achish, and he asks Achish if he can have some territory of his own. David has brought with him his household, his two of his wives, 600 men, I think, with him. He asks for some land, to some area where he can live while he's hiding out from Saul. And Achish gives him some place to live, Ziklag, I believe. And while he's there, David and his men go and they raid other enemies of Israel, specifically the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. And he kills men, women, and children. Let's read from 1 Samuel 27, verses 7 through 12. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. And David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive. And he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, Where have you made a raid today? And David said, against the Negev of Judah, and against the Negev of the Jeremelites, and against the Negev of the Kenites. And David did not leave a man or woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, lest they should tell about us, saying, so David has done, and so has been his practice all the time he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has surely made himself odious among his people Israel, therefore he shall become my servant forever. Now what's happened here? David has gone and attacked the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. He comes back and he tells Achish, I attacked actually places in Judah. Judah, the Jeremelites, and the Kenites. He's lied to Achish. He's not told him the truth. Well, how do we evaluate this? This obviously seems like David has lied what kind of relationship exists between David and Achish? Is it a neighborly relationship? Well, in some sense, while they lived in geographical proximity to one another right now, I would submit to you that they were still enemies. Achish, the Philistines, they were the enemies of Israel. Now, one might question David's um, motivation for seeking to go hide out from Saul in enemy territory. That's what David has chosen to do. But while he's there... I think he's pursuing a deceptive military strategy. While he's hiding out, God is sovereignly protecting him. Saul doesn't seek him out. He is safe there. And David continues, in some sense, to battle against Israel's enemies while he is kept safe from Saul. Now, eventually, Achish's people, the Philistines, will question Achish's wisdom in allowing David to remain among them but as I say, I think that David's pursuing a deceptive military strategy, a strategy that works. Achish is, is fooled by this in verse 12. He thinks that, well, yes, David is actually going to become on our side. He's going to become my servant forever. 
But obviously that was not God's purpose. It wasn't David's purpose to actually go onto the side of the, of the Philistines. Um, I would say that while, yes, David was doing harm to Achish, he was still an enemy. He was not in a neighborly relationship. And so I would say that David's sin was in a different category than Jacob's. He was pursuing Israel's enemies. Deceiving the enemy in a time of war, I would say, is not sin. There's other examples on your handout, quite a few. We're not going to look at those. Quite a few examples of similar things like this. The people of God pursuing, fighting against their enemies, they're oftentimes deceptive. And I would say that in these cases, not necessarily sinful. Perhaps we might say as kind of a, um, a way to evaluate this, as we saw last week, that the sixth commandment didn't rule out all killing, so I would say the ninth commandment doesn't rule out all deception. Deception is sometimes justified, particularly, and this is the key, when it has to do with the promotion of justice against the wicked especially when the wicked is seeking out to take innocent life. So I would follow both John Frame and John Murray who say that we have no obligation to tell the truth to people who seek innocent life. Now these occasions are probably very rare for us, thankfully. But the occasions do exist, we've seen them in history. Thinking about the ethics of deception, the ethics of concealment this week, I read the book, which I'd never read before, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Hands up, who's read this book? Excellent. If your hand wasn't raised, you ought to read it. Wonderful book. I'm glad that I had to read it and had. I'm glad that I did read it this week. Um, so many things for us to learn there, not just about the ethics of deception, but that is kind of the classic case. A Christian is hiding Jews in their home from Nazis. Again, this is not really probably going to happen to us, but it's illustrative. The, the Gestapo comes to your door and asks directly, are you hiding Jews in your home? What does the Christian say? If you say, yes, I'm hiding Jews, well, then certainly they're going to search the home and they're probably going to be found and ultimately murdered. To not answer at all is basically to say yes, because they'll probably still search the home, they'll be found. So what does the Christian say? I think the Christian has to lie in that case. They've counted the cost. They have made the commitment to shelter these people in their home. They are in a neighborly relationship. They are being neighbors to these people by seeking to save their lives. I think the only option they do have is to tell the enemy, those that are seeking innocent life, tell them, no, we're not sheltering anyone here. I actually have one more quote. I forgot about this one. This one might be on your handout. It is quite true that the scripture warrants concealment of the truth from those who have no claim upon it. We immediately recognize the justice of this. How intolerable life would be if we were under obligation to, to disclose all the truth. And concealment is often an obligation which truth itself requires. So... Again, probably very rare for us, but I think there are occasions that Scripture would say it's okay to conceal the truth, to not tell the truth. 
We shouldn't take this lightly. I think if time allows, when we find ourselves in this kind of scenario, if time allows, we just seek counsel before doing so. We need to move on to number 10. The 10th commandment, desires of the heart. I don't have a lot to share on this one. While the 10th commandment is speaking directly to the desires of our heart, to our inward attitudes, I think in some ways not a lot has to be said because I think we'd agree that all of the other commandments were also speaking to the desires of our heart. They were all, every single one of them has been pointing to inward motivations and attitudes. But the 10th commandment, Exodus 20, verse 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So this commandment also is specifically structured in those neighborly relationships, just like number nine. And I think we should realize that it is in those relationships most closely to us that coveting would be most disruptive coveting something that belongs to your neighbor that would be most disruptive in our relationships but what is coveting it's not a word we use very often I don't know that I've used it hardly at all necessarily basically it's sinful desire one definition I think is also on your handout this comes from John McKay he defines coveting this way coveting describes a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something belonging to another. This desire stimulated by perception of the beauty or desirability of what is coveted. He also adds this, coveting is a forbidden feeling rather than a forbidden act. So, what might be the foundation of this commandment? What is the 10th commandment founded upon? Well, I think, again, we can see things in God's character that give us the basis for not coveting. First of all, God is self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and not in need of anything. If you've read A.W. Pink, this is what he would call the solitariness of God. Romans 11.35, who is first given to God that it might be paid back to him? Well, that's a rhetorical question. No one's ever given anything to God because he doesn't lack anything. He doesn't need anything. He's satisfied and content in himself. Secondly, I think we should see in Jesus that not only did Jesus never sin with an act or a word, he never actually had sinful desire. I think we have to assume that's the case. Coveting being sinful desire Jesus must not have had a desire to sin. When 1 John 3, 5 says, in him there is no sin, I think that has to include sinful desire as well. Now that's hard for us to imagine because our hearts oftentimes, I think, desire sin. When we're tempted, and this is not to say that temptation is the same as sin, it's not. 
But I think there are occasions, I've seen it myself, that when we're tempted, rather than flee, turn and flee, I think sometimes we pause, roll it over in our mind, begin to think about that sin, begin to desire to do it, whether we actually carry it out or not. And I think that desire itself, wanting to sin, I think is rightly called sin. In a broad way, I think that's a transgression of the Tenth Commandment. So really, to apply this commandment, we have to search our hearts. We're probably not going to have a brother or sister in Christ come up to us and say, I can tell you've been coveting lately. Probably not going to say that because by and large, it's within here. Others probably aren't going to see it. Now, there could be evidences of things we're doing that might perhaps betray that we've been coveting something, but our brothers and sisters might not see that. So this is something that we have to examine in ourselves, examine our hearts, so that we might perhaps be, as Psalm 24 describes, those with not only clean hands but a pure heart. Let's think about, I find this instructive as well, Did you know that Paul singled out coveting as a specific sin that aroused in him guilt and his understanding that he was guilty before God? You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, Paul describes, he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Now, what was it that Paul had to covet? Seemingly, I think the first answer would be, well, nothing. Paul seemed to have everything. You know, from Philippians 3, he lists all of his great advantages, that is, being a Jew, circumcised on the eighth eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to regards to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. What did Paul lack? What could Paul have coveted? Well, one pastor has suggested that perhaps Paul the Apostle didn't really have anything to covet, but Saul of Tarsus? That's a different story. Think about what we see in Acts chapter 7. What we see in Acts chapter 7 is a young man named Saul standing and giving approval to what? The stoning of Stephen. What was so special about Stephen? I'll read Acts chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men, what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen, and yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, where was Saul from? It was from Tarsus. And where is Tarsus? It's in Cilicia. Could it be, there's some conjecture here, but perhaps the biblical data is suggesting 
And perhaps even Saul was among those who were unable to cope and argue effectively with Stephen's great preaching and teaching. Could it be the one thing that Saul didn't have? The thing he couldn't have before his conversion, he couldn't have the grace and the power with which Stephen was able to preach and teach. So perhaps Saul's conclusion that if I can't have that, well then Saul and, I'm sorry, Stephen and his band of brothers and sisters, the church, must be done away with. Maybe this is why Paul singled out coveting, sinful desire, desiring something that he didn't have, couldn't have. That's what revealed to him his guilt and death before his conversion. So we should see, I hope, that sinful desire can bring forth very bad fruit. Desire can lead to very bad fruit, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. So, here we are, having spent seven weeks on the Ten Commandments. A few concluding thoughts, and they run along two different tracks. Let's remember from the first week in our series, we talked about the three uses of the law. One of the uses of the law was that the law is used to point out our sinfulness like a mirror. It shows us our sin. As Paul said, he wouldn't have known what coveting was if the law hadn't told him about it. But it doesn't only point out our sin, it also points us to Christ the one who is the solution for our sin. And this way the law is a schoolmaster that points us to Christ. So when we are convicted by the law, when we find that we've broken the law, as I've said in weeks past, we don't look down in guilt and in shame. We look to Christ, who's always ready and able to forgive, always ready and able to forgive and restore our fellowship with God. But then also the third use of the law is what we call a rule of life. It's this way that the law guides our lives. I think with these two uses of the law in mind, we can make sense of something that I read not too long ago in Sinclair Ferguson where he says, we do not receive the law from the hands of Moses, rather we receive the law from the hands of Christ. Now there's a difference there. Unbelievers always beaten down by the law, beaten down by Moses. You even see this illustrated in Pilgrim's Progress, I think. Someone comes behind faithful, beating him down, attacking him. They finally realize, who was that? It was Moses beating him down, beating him down with the law. We don't receive the law from the hands of Moses. We receive it from Christ. And it is true that Jesus tells us, if you love me, you will obey my commands But Jesus also tells us my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And there's a world of difference there. Jesus bids us to obey, but he also in himself and his spirit empowers us to do so. And this way we can see, I think, one of the key differences in the old and the new covenants. The old covenant being do this and live. That is, Moses receiving the law from God, giving it to God's people, saying, do this, obey this, live this way, and you will live and find blessing with God, from God. The new covenant actually says, live and do this. 
that is live in Christ in union with him, the spirit dwelling within us, empowering us to do the things that he's called us to do. So as we live in Christ, then we seek to live according to the law. And finally, I think this is a temptation for me. Perhaps it's a temptation for you. We have to be vigilant in our desire that in wanting to follow the law, we don't resort or revert to that do this and live mentality. Sometimes our focus on doing can become deadly. We must not think that our status before God is based on things we've done. We must not think that we're keeping the law simply for law's sake. We don't keep the law to gain favor or merit with God. We don't keep the law in order to make ourselves acceptable to God. We don't keep the law in such a way that we become performance-based in our thinking. The Christian life is not do more and try harder. It's not. That's a temptation for us, I think. While we want to remain faithful, and here at Calvary we understand the importance of personal holiness, but we don't want to focus so much on doing that our doing becomes deadly. But it's the stuff of our own doing rather than the spirit wrought rock work within our hearts. So perhaps I'll finish with a few lines of a hymn that I've stumbled across, heard about. An old 19th century hymn whose writer is said to have met with more than one sinner seeking peace at the foot of Sinai rather than at the foot of the cross. The hymn says this, Nothing, either great or small, nothing sinner know. Jesus died and paid it all long, long ago. It is finished, yes, indeed, finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you that you have given us everything that we need, life, godliness, forgiveness of sin, and you've given it to us in Christ. Praise you that as we have been saved, you also give us your spirit, enabling us to bear good fruit in our lives, to use the law as a guide, to, fo um, to follow you as we seek to live according to it. So, Father, help us to keep our eyes upon you, focused on Christ, and that the spirit would bear fruit in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.